Well, as I said earlier, we, uh, we're going to be continuing in this series on Ephesians that Doug started last week. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 1 tonight. And, and i got to tell you, for, uh, just at the outset, this text that we're going to be looking at has transformed my life. Okay? This text has meant more to me over the last, shoot, over a decade than just about any other text in all of Scripture. And so I'm excited about preaching this text. I'm excited about what it has in store for us. It's a prayer of Paul. And uh, with that, let me read it. This is Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand above all, uh, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills everything in every way. This is God's Word. And as I thought about this passage and what it means, I, the, the question occurred to me, and it's one that I think gets asked a lot in a lot of different areas, is are you living up to your potential? You know, think about the potential that you have to live as a human being. Do you feel like you should be better at life? Do you feel like you should be better at work? better with relationships, better able to live the way you know you're supposed to live. So many people feel like they're living subpar lives. right? They sense this gap between what they know they ought to be and what they feel like they really are. And as we struggle with this gap, we experience a whole range of emotions. right? Depression, frustration, we become fearful, Because we just know, deep in our hearts, we know that life is supposed to be better than this. And so we try to fix it. We try to fix things. We do all manner of things to try to close the gap. The self-help industry thrives. It makes billions of dollars every year as we attend seminars or we read books or articles on the web. We go scouring for tips to better living. Um, And a lot of the times we just, we try harder. And for most of us, All the effort that we make doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't do anything. It feels like no matter how hard we pull this way to try to improve ourselves, there's this gravitational force that drags us back to where we started, like a tractor beam. And I think the problem is that most self-help stuff tries to make us something that we're not. tries to make us something that we're not. And it's interesting... I was at the airport yesterday, I was talking to a man, and this is what he said. He said, you know, the biggest religious group in the world, they're non-practicing Catholics. 
And he was Catholic, so he could say that. You know, my initial reaction was, well, gosh, it's, the Catholics don't have, you know, the corner on non-practicing members, so, you know, don't sell yourself too hard. But what's interesting about that is that even religious people don't often find a lot of help. In fact, religion simply isn't the answer. And I think, actually, this keeps a lot of people from ever coming to church, if you think about it, because people have this strong sense of this gap that exists between what they ought to be and what they really are, and most people feel like all churches will do is remind you of this gap and make you feel guilty about it. And people have the sense of, I'm pretty, I'm doing okay on the guilt meter, so I really don't need to come and get a healthy dose of this because I already know what you're going to tell me. And, you know, that's how it feels for, for a lot of people, why they don't come to church. And I got to tell you, I have been searching for literally over 10 years to try to find an illustration or a story that can picture or represent the struggle that this gap is for you know, for people. Like, I've tried to figure out, like, what's an easy way to explain the problem and the solution? And I found it. I found it two months ago. You know what it is? It's a book. Tarzan of the Apes. Tarzan. How many of you have read the book, Tarzan of the Apes? Edgar Rice Burroughs. Okay, well, this will be new for most of you. Um, how many of you have seen the movies? Johnny Weissmuller, Black and White. Okay. Anybody seen the Disney movie? Yeah, even more. Okay. Well, it's interesting because uh, well, I read the book, Tarzan of the Apes, a couple months ago, and I was just amazed. I was like, wait, wait, this is it. This is it. This perfectly, oh my goodness. And then I thought, well, okay, wait, if I'm going to share this in a sermon, I need to watch the movies because I hadn't actually seen the movies. So this week I watched the first two Johnny Weissmuller movies and the Disney movie just to sort of see what would be in most of your minds when I mentioned Tarzan, right? And uh, i got to tell you, and I think everybody says this when you've read the book and then seen the movies, the book is nothing like the movie, okay? The movies completely destroyed the book and the message of the book. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about the book. And, and just for those of you who don't remember, at least in the book, the, the, the storyline is that Tarzan is separated from his parents when he's one year old. Okay, he gets separated from his parents, and he's raised by a community of apes. And he spends the majority of his upbringing believing that he's an ape. Right? And so because of this, he acts like an ape. He lives like an ape. He eats like an ape. He talks like an ape. He thinks like an ape, even though he wasn't an ape. He was human, but he didn't know it. And while he didn't understand who he was, his life looked like something that it wasn't. And I think that Tarzan is an amazing picture of people today. This is how we are. We have so much potential. We have so much in, uh, that is true about us, but we're so far behind what we're supposed to be. We're, it's as though we are living among the apes, if you look at our lives in so many ways. Now, the good news is that the Bible speaks directly to this issue. Okay, the passage that we're looking at today in Ephesians 1 directly hits this point where we need it. And it's interesting because although Paul's solution to this. It's similar to some of the health, the self-help stuff that's out there. It's also radically different. It's radically different. In fact, Paul spent most of his ministry, if you read Paul's letters, you could almost have a hat or a title 
that where, where Paul spent most of his time helping people with the Tarzan syndrome. He spent almost all of his time trying to help people understand who they really were, who they really are. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see in this text, Paul says that the key to becoming all that you are supposed to be is in prayer. It's in prayer. This text is the prayer of Paul, and it teaches us four things. So these are the, these are the points on your outline. Let me give them to you quick. Why we pray? Well, it's because prayer makes the Bible real. Okay, that's the first point. And then the next three are what we pray for. And so point number two, your calling has hope. Point number three, your inheritance is limitless. And then point four, God's power is in you. These are the three things that we're going to see coming from Paul's prayer. And so first, prayer makes the Bible real. Prayer makes the Bible real. Prayer actually connects us to God. When we pray, we are actually, we are living out the reality that God is more than just a force. God's a person. He has a personality. And when we pray, I mean, Paul, he wants us, he wants nothing more than that we would know God better. That's verse 17. He says, I pray so that you may know him better. Paul wants us to know certain things, and then he wants us to take these truths into the presence of God. Prayer is the key to moving from knowing about God to actually knowing God. Okay, prayer makes the Bible real. When you pray what the Bible teaches, it begins to affect you. How many times have you read the Bible, and you've gotten up from reading the Bible, and you think, what did I just read? I mean, that happens to me more often than I'd like to admit. But when you read a text, I mean, actually, I've been starting to do this. As I read the text, I've been trying to pray the text back to God. And so what I do is I bring the text into this imaginary room where God and I are. And as I do that and I begin to pray and talk to God about the truths that I'm reading, they come alive. They become real because these truths are actually referring to a God who's real. And it helps me understand the person that I'm communicating with. I think we see this in a couple of different ways. Um, This is an election year, right? And it's interesting because politics is one of those areas where it's really easy to completely broad brush and malign a political position until you know somebody that you care about who holds that position. Right? I had this experience. Um, I thought Ron Paul was kind of a kook, I had, but I didn't know anything about him. I, just, I had no idea. I didn't know what he stood for. I didn't know anything about him. But I thought, well, he's a small per- you know, he's kind of a small, he's not getting any votes. He must be one of those kind of wacko kook guys that are just running, you know, like Mike Huckabee or something like that. And, um, and then I started talking, and then I had a friend of mine who was an avid Ron Paul supporter. And so I said, so tell me about this Ron Paul guy. And he starts telling me about Ron Paul, and I thought, oh, all right, well, I don't agree with everything that you're saying, but you know what, he doesn't sound like a kook anymore. He sounds like somebody who's got some real ideas and a political philosophy that, you know, might actually work in certain areas. And, but it was knowing this person, it was having somebody that I actually cared about begin to defend or explain that made me think, you know what, I think I've been kind of insensitive to this poor Ron Paul guy. Um, And so we do this in politics, but it's that dynamic of having that personal relationship that makes the ideas real, okay? And I think we do the same thing when it comes to particular communities, um, particular 
struggles that people have, we also are very prone to be horribly insensitive to struggles that we don't understand. Okay, we assume that if you struggle with, you know, a particular list of sins and, you know, everybody's got a different list, but if you struggle with these, well, you're just horrible. You're just rotten and evil. You know, we do this as Christians. We think, well, at least we're not like them. Right? Well, amazing things happen to me when I actually begin to love people who struggle with those things that are on my list. I almost, I'm almost at the point now where I don't want to say anything almost unless I love somebody who's struggling with what I'm going to speak against. Because that's the only way that I can learn how to be sensitive. And the same thing is true. This is the dynamic. When you understand that God is a person, and when you take the truth into your relationship with Him, when you bring that truth into the presence of God, it becomes real. Does that make sense? It becomes real when you bring it. And, and so what Paul is trying to get, at, get, get across to us is that prayed truth changes us. Prayed truth begins to close that gap. If you can understand it and bring it into the presence of God, it'll change you. This is what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. It says if you want to please God, the key is the transformation of your mind. It's thinking the way God thinks. Jesus said the exact same thing in one of his prayers in John 17, 17. He was praying and he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so it's the truth when it's coupled with prayer that begins to have an impact on us. And this is actually true in the book Tarzan. Okay, because it's once Tarzan knew he was different, at that point he began to act differently. Here are a couple quotes from the book. He was nearly ten before he commenced to realize that a great difference existed between himself and his fellow and the fellow apes. Okay, then this. His superior intelligence and cunning permitted him to invent. So as Tarzan began to recognize the distinction here, he started to invent things that were way beyond the capabilities of the rest of his community. And listen to this. Tarzan of the Apes, little primitive man, presented an allegorical figure of the primordial groping through the black night of ignorance toward the light of learning. So you have the author. This is intentional. The author is trying to communicate that Tarzan is going through, in the book, Tarzan's going through the process of becoming human. And he's not becoming something different. He's actually learning who he is. And so he's becoming who he is. And so again, how we think about ourselves, what we know about ourselves, that's the key to change. And that's what Paul's getting at. This whole prayer, Paul says over and over again, I'm praying that you would know. I'm praying that you would understand. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you would get who you are as a Christian. And so what exactly does Paul want us to understand? Well, these are the next three points. First, Paul wants you to understand that this is number two on your outline, that your calling has hope. Your calling has hope. Okay, so you have a calling. And this letter even teaches you. If you just read Ephesians, you can get a sense of what your calling is. You're called to be a saint. That's verse two. You're called to be one of God's children. You're adopted. You're called to be holy and blameless. You're called to live as forgiven people. You're called to forgive others and be reconciled to others. You're called to honor God and to live thankfully. You're called to bless the world around you. 
your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members? Well, I guess at some point, I feel like at this point we're kind of back to the beginning, right? Because how are you doing on this? <laughs> how are you doing living out your call? I mean, sometimes thinking about your calling is kind of discouraging because the calling is this and we're down here, right? Well, this is why Paul wants you to understand that your calling has hope. Your calling has hope. And hope is the encouragement that this gap can be reduced. Okay, now what is hope? Well, sometimes we use the word hope, and really we just mean wish. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I win the lottery without ever buying a ticket. So that won't ever happen, but it'd be nice. But I don't want to waste... Anyways. Um, So I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get a better job. I hope I get an interview. I hope I have a relationship this year. I hope, I hope, I hope. Sometimes we use the word hope, and all it just means is wish. Okay, but then there's other times that we use the word hope, and it means something more. Okay, Jamie, I was at the airport yesterday because Jamie was flying up to Sacramento to see Grandma. And the last time Jamie flew up to Sacramento, and you know how it works, well, you might not know how it works, but when you have a minor that's traveling unaccompanied, I've got to go and fill out these papers, and then there's like this handing over of, she's like the the briefcase that, you know, she's a handcuff to me, and then, you know, I walk over, and then the handcuff comes off me and goes on to the uh, flight attendant, and then they go into the plane, and then, you know, and then she comes off the plane, and Grandma's supposed to be there. Well, last time, Grandma wasn't there. Yeah, so Jamie comes off, and it wasn't a big deal, because the flight attendant doesn't let go, right? Handcuff, not literally. And, um, and so there's Jamie waiting for her grandmother. And what does she say? She says, well, I hope... She's going to be here soon. Now, that's not a wish, right? It's different. She's not really wishing. She's not saying, well, gosh, wouldn't it be great? Here I am sitting at the airport. Wouldn't it be great if Grandma would show up? No, no, no. She's, when she says, I ha-, she's saying, I have hope in Grandma that she will show up. And so there's times when we use the word hope, and what it refers to is it's a certain level of confidence that we have in someone else or something else to happen. Okay, And the level of confidence that we have depends on what we're hoping or who we're hoping in, right? Jamie, high level of confidence in her hope because she knows her grandma loves her. You know, she knows that grandma's probably just struggling to get through security. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about hope in this second sense, in this greater, more significant, more profound sense. Why? Well, because in the Bible, all of our hope is based on God. Okay, whenever the Bible talks about hope, it's all based on God coming through with his promise or his action, or it's it's God making good on what he says he'll do. And so we have an enormous amount of confidence with when it comes to biblical hope. And so when Paul says that you that there is hope in your calling, that calling to be a blessing to others, that calling to be holy. He's saying that you can have confidence. You can have confidence that this gap will decrease. Why? Where does the hope come from? Where does that encouragement come from? What Paul has just said in our text, actually in the text from last week, he's just said it in verses 13 and 14. Here's what Paul says. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit 
guaranteeing our inheritance. So verse 14 says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. The presence of the Holy Spirit. So how's this for hope? Okay, think about the hope of your calling. Think about it like this. If you believe in Jesus, you have God living in you. You have God living in you. God. God living in you. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God. And it comes and it lives in you. Do you know this? Do you understand this? Do you believe it? Paul wants you to understand this. That's what he's praying about. He wants you to know this and to believe in it. Can you live up to your potential? No. Not on your own. But what if you have God in you? If the one who loves without boundaries is in you, can you love more than you do? Yeah. If the one who is infinitely patient is in you, can you grow to be more patient? This is the hope. This is the confidence that we can have, that we can actually walk worthy of our calling. Another quote from Tarzan. It says, as Tarzan grew older, there were many new truths, great fields of thought, and new ambitions that stirred his soul. As Tarzan began to come to grips that he was human, that he was different from the apes, and began to explore what those differences were, he had new thoughts. It says, there's other places where it says, he, he got to the point where he couldn't even communicate with the other apes about all this other stuff because they had no categories for what he was thinking of because they were different from him. Well, the same thing happens to us as we understand the hope of our calling that God truly is in you. We begin to change. That that changes us. So what do you do with this hope? Well, you take this hope and you bring it into God's presence through prayer. You go to the Lord and you pray your hope. That's when your hope becomes real. And so you pray something like this. Look, God, I know you want me to be a certain way. I know I should be more loving, more patient. I know I should do a better job working more faithfully. I know, God, I know that I'm supposed to be up here. But God, I can't. I fail. I fail to be this way, God. But I know that you are in me. And with your power in me, with your presence in me, I know I can grow. God, please help me to understand that you're in me. Help me to understand that you are what I want to be. And you're in me. I mean, that's the prayer. I I had to pray that prayer this week. I was an absolute jerk of a dad on Monday and Tuesday of this week. And on Wednesday morning, I went, I mean, and you know, the worst thing is, I'm thinking, I'm preaching on this text in like five days and this is how I'm doing? Like, this is not a good thing. You know, what right do I have? And then, so Wednesday morning, I said, Lord, I see my calling and I'm not doing it. I'm failing. I've been such a jerk and, you know, even worse than a jerk. And, and I, but then I said, but God, wait, wait, I have hope. 
I really do have hope because you live in me. And I prayed about my inheritance. And I prayed about the power that was in me. And it changed me. It really did. It changed me. My heart was full of love. My heart was full of patience. And this rest of the week has been noticeably different for me. And so you go to the Lord with your hope and you pray it. And you'll find yourself, if you start your mornings with this kind of prayer, if when you hit that tough situation that always tempts you or that's always difficult for you and you rehearse this prayer and you go into the Lord's presence with this prayer, you will see a difference. You will grow. That gap will begin to shrink. And this is different from self-help because self-help says, look, you can do this on your own. If you just sort of like grit your teeth and, and, and try hard, you can do this. Christianity's different. Christianity says, well, no, you really can't do this on your own. But you have God in you. And with God's strength, with His power, with His presence, you can actually be what God calls you to be. Okay, well then Paul goes on. So that's that your calling has hope. Paul goes on. Point three, Paul wants you to know that your inheritance is huge. Your inheritance is huge. This is verse 18. I want you to know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, what if you knew, hypothetical, what if you knew that you were in someone's will and you were going to get $100 million? What if? And they were going to die in probably 20, 30 years. How would that change you? Would that have an effect on you? What if you were in someone's will for $100 million and you got 10% of it tomorrow? So what if you got a check for $10 million tomorrow with a promise that you're going to get an extra $90 million when the person dies? What would change about you? What wouldn't change about you, right? I mean... Think about that. Think about it for a second. Maybe, maybe not everything changes overnight. But think about the load that would be lifted. Think about the things that you wouldn't have to worry about anymore. Right? Think about the impact. Maybe you're in a job that is so connected in your mind to what God is doing to renew the city and the community that you would actually stay in the job that you have. So let's say your job doesn't change. But can you imagine the the security that you'd feel, right? You're done. You're done having to earn money. You're done having to worry about anything financially. I mean, everything really about you changes, doesn't it? There's this great quote from The Hobbit. Okay? Um, You remember The Hobbit? They haven't made a movie about it yet. Well, they had the cartoon that was actually pretty cool. Um... But uh, they're, I think they're coming out with the movie. Peter Jack- they're fighting with Peter Jackson over if he was going to direct it or not. Um, but there's this great quote from the book. Okay, from the book. Read the books. Um, the dwarves were in the cave of the dragon. You remember at the end, who remembers the name of the dragon? Smog. Good. Smog. So they're in the dragon's lair. And it's dark and smog is off. He's off pillaging the poor little wood town of Bard. And why Smog didn't fry that town, set it on fire a lot, you know, earlier, who knows. But um, the dwarves are in the cave. It's dark. 
and they know that smog could come back at any moment. And so they were terrified. They were, they were frightened. They were worried. And then it says this. Here's a quote from the book. When they caught just a glimpse of the treasure as they went along, it rekindled all the fire in their dwarvish hearts. And when the heart of a dwarf, even the most respectable, is wakened by gold and jewels, he grows suddenly bold and he may become fierce. The dwarves indeed no longer needed any urging. All now were eager. Isn't that amazing? This was the the riches and 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 the treasures of the dwarves. And just getting a glimpse of it set fire in their hearts. You know, and look, and it's not all about money, okay? That's, I know there's more to life than money, and even having lots of money doesn't get you happiness necessarily. But money does get us excited, right? I mean, think about it. When you get extra money, it does something to us. Well, what if your inheritance, what if this will that you're in now, what if the inheritance was a new heart, What if the inheritance that you were assured of getting was a new perspective on life? What if it was genuine love that would fill your heart to overflowing? What if it was an unending peace and a joy that didn't depend on your circumstances? What if your inheritance was humility that would actually care about the needs of others? What if it was a mind that would enable you to connect what you do for a living with what God is doing to renew the city? This is the inheritance that Paul's talking about. When Paul says, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance, Paul wants you to know that what is coming, it's glorious. It's glorious. And when you think about this inheritance, I mean, maybe some of you just in hearing me say some of those things, we're thinking, wow, like that, that actually kindles a little bit of a fire in your heart. What's amazing about this is that the Holy Spirit, what Paul says is the Holy Spirit is the down payment. And so your present experience of the Holy Spirit means that you get a down payment of everything that's in store for you. Okay? The end result of what God is going to do is he's going to completely renovate the whole heaven and earth. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth where everything is the way it should be. Where you are exactly the way that you should be. Where every relationship that you have is pure and it's meaningful. Where no one hurts you and you don't hurt anyone else. Where your past doesn't bog you down and affect your future. Where you are actually productive in every aspect of life. That's what we're looking forward to. But that's what you have a down payment of now. If you believe in Jesus, you get the beginnings of that today. William Randolph Hearst, you know, the Hearst Castle, he built the Hearst Hearst Castle. He once read of this extremely valuable piece of art. And he decided he had to add this to his already extensive collection. And so he sends out an agent to scour the galleries of the world to find this piece of art and to acquire it for him. It didn't matter what it cost. After many months of painstaking search, this agent comes back to Mr. Hurst and says that the piece already belonged to him. That it was in one of the warehouses 
And it had been there for years. Friends, that's us. That's us. I mean, think about it. We, we ask God for more of this, more of that, more of something. And Paul is sitting here saying, you know, you just need to know what you have. How many more blessings do you need if you already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Paul's saying, look, this isn't like self-help. You don't need to get something else that you don't already have. No, Paul's praying that you'd understand the blessings that God has already given you. That's the difference. The problem is we don't know the riches of our inheritance. But when you remember your inheritance, and then you take that inheritance into the presence of God and make it real, you bring these truths into God's presence through prayer, and you say, God, boy, I do have a loving heart. That's part of my inheritance. And I don't live according to a loving heart. I don't feel like I have a loving heart, but the Bible says I do if I believe in you. God, help me to live this way. Help me to remember that your love, your infinite and boundless love is in me. When you do that, you will sense the love of God welling up in your heart. And you'll think, you know, I can love more than I do. This is how we bring the inheritance We bring it into God's presence and pray about it. It changes us from the inside out. Well, the last thing that Paul gets to, this is point four, is he says, God's power to reverse evil is unleashed in you. Okay? The short version is that you have God's power in you. The longer version is that God's power to reverse evil is unleashed in you. They say you're supposed to have short points when you do things like this so that they're memorable. And I just think that lengthier version, I mean, you really got to get this. God's power to reverse evil is unleashed in you. Paul wants you to know this. He wants you to understand it. Because when it comes down to it, at that moment when we struggle, at that moment when we commit the familiar sin, at that moment when we are struggling the most, we feel like what we need is power, right? I mean, that's how I feel. If I forget or if I'm in a dark place, I always think, look, I'm just not strong enough to be patient with the kids. You know, I'm just not strong enough. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. So I don't want to listen to my wife. And I feel like I don't have enough power. You know, I feel like, well, I just don't want to try to eat right. I don't want to try to care about other people's needs. I don't want to try because I'm tired, because I don't feel like I have enough strength. And what Paul says to us here in this text, verses 19 and 20, his incomparably great power for us who believe, he says you need to know the power that works in you. And then he describes the power. He says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. What does that mean? What was the power that raised Jesus from the dead? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, to Paul, this is a pretty important question, right? If you can't answer what power it was that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead, then you're not going to know the power of God that works in you, right? But if you can know the one, then you'll understand the other. So what is it? What is the power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead? Well, think about it. Think about what happened. You have a dead body lying in the ground. 
And then when the power is exerted, the result of the power is you've got a glorified and exalted Jesus ruling and reigning over everything in heaven. So what kind of power do you need to go from the grave to the sky? Creation, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, think about it. Yeah. So you need first, you need to have, you need to be able to, you need to have power to give new life to a dead body. Right? Pretty simple. And what does that entail? Well, muscles have to be enlivened. You've got to spark muscles to work again. You've got to bring light back into the eyes and restore the ability to see. The heart has to begin to beat again. It's got to be able to pump the life-giving blood throughout that body. The brain needs to be engaged to be able to think again. Emotions have to be reactivated. This is the power of God that he had to exert when he brought Jesus back from the dead. But it's even more than that. Because Jesus didn't just die physically. What Jesus endured on the cross, when he was put in the grave, what he endured wasn't just physical death, but it was spiritual death. He was paying the price for sin. He was suffering the consequences of sin. And so when Jesus died, the power of sin and death held on to him. And so more than just re-enlivening the body and its parts, God had to overcome the power of sin. He had to break through the power of sin. He had to overcome the power of sin and death and darkness to bring Jesus up from the dead. Paul says the same power works in you. And you you have to make a connection here. You have to understand something. That... um, that the sins that we commit, they actually bring death. Okay? The, the, the things that we do, you know, God doesn't, God doesn't give us laws because he just wants to be able to stand up there and go, yeah, but you didn't obey me perfectly. And so no matter what you do, like I can still point out all these different areas of your life where you've fallen short. That's not why God gives laws. Okay? God doesn't give laws so that we would all fall short. Okay? Why does God give laws? God's laws give life. Romans 7.10 even says this. The law which was to give life. Paul says, I actually found that it brought forth death. He talks about that. But Psalm 1, blessed is the one who doesn't walk after evil, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water who brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf never withers and everything he does prospers. We follow God's laws because they give life. They lead to happiness. They lead to joy. They lead to us being all that God has called us to be. Right? And so the point I want you to get is that when we break those laws, when we don't follow God's ways, what we're doing is we're spreading death in small ways. We're bringing bits of death into our relationships, into our hearts, into the... Into the into the work life that we have, into our relationships with neighbors. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? That all these things, when we, when we disobey God, when we choose to go our own way, it, it, it promotes death. And if you can understand that, then you can understand how the power that brings life from the dead works in you. Okay, because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that you need to conquer the death-bringing things that you do in your life. 
Okay? And so you need power over sexual temptation. Right? You need power over laziness. Power over anger. Power over debilitating fear. Power over the abuses of authority in your life. These are the things that bring death. All these things darken the world. And God has overcome all of them in the resurrection of Jesus. He's overcome them all. When he brought Jesus back from the dead, he said, my power is stronger than anything that death can throw at us. I have overcome this. I am stronger than this. And then God takes this power and he just hurls it at you. He throws it at you. He takes this power, the same power that he unleashed when he raised Jesus from the dead, and he brings that power into your life. That's the power that works in you. The resurrection of Jesus was this amazing exertion of power, and God says that same power is in you. That same power works in you when you believe in Jesus. Do you understand that? That's what Paul is saying. I'm not making this up. Paul is saying this. This is what he says. And the question you have to ask yourself is, do I believe it? Do I believe that this is true? Because God says that this is true. When you believe in Jesus, God unleashes his power in you. And it's the power that reverses evil in your life. There is nothing that you're struggling with that God's power can't overcome. Nothing. 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 You have to know. Do you know this power? Is this power at work in you? Well, I think for some of you, just hearing this description is making you feel like, wait a second. Yeah, that's true. I don't have to give in to these sins. I really don't. I I am stronger than this. I don't have to do these kinds of things. Because you feel the power in you right now, even as I describe it. And then for others, you're feeling like, well, look, all I know is that when I'm in that situation, I don't feel the power. And I want to encourage you, what Paul would say is you take this truth and you run into the presence of God and you say, God, your word says I have this power. You promise that I have this power. I don't know that you've ever failed in a promise before, but I don't feel like I have this power. Will you please remind me that you live in me, that I have this inheritance in the future that's begun today and that this same power is at work in me. Please, God, help me understand that. Help me bring your power into the room when I'm struggling. And if you do that, God will answer that prayer. If you do that, God will answer. He will teach you. And it may take time. It may take time. It may take help. God hasn't called us to live this life by ourselves. You may need brothers or sisters to come alongside you and help you remember that power in that situation. But this is the key. It's taking these truths. It's reading the scriptures. Again, I I mean, this is what the text says. You have this power in you. And so you bring your failures to God and you confess them and then you, you, you ask God, to help you experience the promise. There's a, one other great quote. There's a, one of the climaxes. This is back to the Tarzan book. It's, it's riveting. Tarzan is running away. Something horrible happens to him, and he's running away. And as he's running in flight, he has a conversation with himself, and he says, What are you, Tarzan? He asked aloud. An ape or a man? If you're an ape, then you'll do as the apes would do. And leave one of your kind to die in the jungle if it suited your whim to go elsewhere. 
But if you're a man, you'll return to protect your kind. You'll not run away from one of your own people. And so what's amazing is that that, I feel like that conversation Tarzan has with himself, it it nails the issue where it really is. It's not, Tarzan, are you going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? It's, Tarzan, who are you? That's a question for us. Who are you? Are you someone that is completely cut off from God with no strength and no power? Or are you a Christian? Are you a Christian living like the ape? Or are you a Christian living according to what Paul says is true about you? Sometimes even that question helps me. Who am I? And I ask myself, you know, I, I hate this. I hate what I'm being tempted to do. I know how I feel after I'm done doing it. I know how horrible I feel. I know how much guilt I feel. I know how rotten I feel when I'm done. I know what I have to go through to confess my sin and then to make reconciliation. I hate this. When I do that, I feel the power. It's like, wait a second, I do hate this. I don't want to do this. You know, and the desire to do that begins to vanish. It begins to fade away. It's not as strong. I mean, this is how we bring these things into our lives. One of the keys to Tarzan's growth was finding books. He found a book and it taught him to read. It's it's amazing because it's this little picture book and he begins to look at the pictures and he sees a picture of someone that looks like himself and then he actually sees a picture um, on another page. It's a picture of the monkeys that he knows pretty well and he sees a difference and there's all these bugs crawling along the bottom of the page that he really kind of ignores. He doesn't like the bugs. The bugs are letters. Okay, but he looks at them and, and the author says he sees these things as bugs and they're just crawling along the pages. He skips over that stuff. But actually, the longer he went with these books, he actually taught himself to read. And it was teaching himself to read that catapulted exponentially his growth. It transformed him in every way because once he had access to these books, he began to realize, oh my goodness, there is so much more out in this world. There is so much more to life. There is so much more to me. And it went to this, it had this incredible, it touched everything and everyone. And friends, we got a book. We have a book. If, you, if all you do is devote yourself to this letter, this letter to the Ephesian church, it's six chapters long. If you just read this letter and own it, it will change everything about you. Because Paul's going to go on and explain exactly how the power of God works in you when you believe in Jesus in chapter 2. He then talks about how the power of God reconciles everybody together in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he talks about the mystery of God uniting people together and the amazing love of God that's poured out into people that empowers them to live in the way that God calls them to live. The rest of the letter explains the hope that we have in our calling. It explains how rich our inheritance is And it nails this issue of the power that works in us. If you just devote yourself to the bugs in this letter, to reading it, and then taking these truths into God's presence and saying, God, help me understand how this could be true. It will change everything about you. This is the glory of believing in Jesus. Verse 19 says that this power, it works in us who believe. Who believe. When you get to the point where you commit to following Jesus, all of this is yours. 
It's all yours. The hope, the inheritance, the power, it's a gift that God gives you. And so when you come to Him on the cross, confessing your sins, confessing how much you need Him, then He comes to you in the resurrection. And He raises you from the dead. And He seats you up in the heavenly places right there with Him. And everything about you changes. Brothers and sisters, that's how we close this gap. That's how we develop the ability to fulfill our potential. That's where the strength comes from for us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we've all been called with. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege. What an amazing privilege, even after hearing your word preached and explained and applied, that we can bring this truth into your presence. God, help us. Help us to believe these things. It's hard for us, God. We, we have thoughts about you that just aren't right. We have thoughts about ourselves that are so far from true. We feel a lot of times like we're just no different from the apes. And yet these truths, Father, there is hope in our calling. We have a rich inheritance that we've begun to experience today. And we have your power in us. God, help us to walk in this power. Help us to continually bring these ideas to you in our prayers so that you can make these things real in us. And God, we ask these things not for our sake, but so that we might live in a way that honors you. So that we might see this powerful gospel, this amazingly good news, go forth in our community, here in Uptown. God, so that people would be able to be exposed to how good you are. We want to be changed so that your name would be lifted high, so that other people would come and want to know you too. So do these things for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.